practice your dolphin mating call and listen to the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies that no one else wants to talk about. This is episode 122, and my name is Jakob. Are you? <laughs> Jesus. And my, and my name is Randy. <laughs> this is episode 122, and my name is Randy. I'm leaving this in. This is this is, oh, this is best. This is, yeah. Okay. Uh, Divine. <laughs> Okay, welcome everyone. This is the best. We're off to a wonderful start. Uh, (laughs) Thank you everyone for listening and supporting us. Uh, We're sort of wrapping up our May theme today, uh, Grand Larson May, uh, our 90s heist movies that we've been covering all along for this month. Um, I say sort of because we may have a little bit of a treat for you, but we'll get into that in just a second. We may, a May treat in May. Uh, We've talked about uh, Wes Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket. We've talked about Sneakers. um, And even in our Soderbergh Shallow Cut this month, we were talking about heist movies as well as over on www.patreon.com slash uncutgemspod. We talked about all three Oceans films. um, And we're all about the heist. So today we'll be talking about Hudson Hawk. Um, Also, though, while on Patreon... Our tie-in chat, uh, which was released a week or so ago, Classic Cinema, 1995's Heat, directed by Michael Mann, starring De Niro, Pacino, Voight, Kilmer, many, many, many others. We just, refin- we just finished Henry recording Rollins. this episode. <laughs> Henry Rollins, William Fickner, <laughs> and Tone Loke. Everyone is in Randy there. Piven. <laughs> so we just finished recording that. Had a wonderful chat. Watch for that. We had a... We had a very special guest with us, Joey Wheel, a Heat super fan. So you'll have to check that out. Um, and you can check that out if you're just a casual listener of the show. We decided to make that Patreon episode free for four weeks. So May 17th to June 14th. So head on over to our Patreon. Again, patreon.com slash uncutgemspod. Or you can find us through our main website, www.uncutgemspodcast.com. All right. Delicious. So while you're on Patreon, check out what we've got. We've got some 50 episodes there, including a full David Lynch marathon. So last year, 2022, we covered all of his films. And uh, this year, we are well on our way into covering all of John Cassavetti's films. So we have talked already about uh, Child is Waiting and Faces. And later this month, we are going to be talking about Husbands. So watch and shadows. That. We also did shadows. We did shadows and we did uh two late blues as well. Yeah. So this will be our fifth entry with husbands later this month. So uh yeah, first bit of news, big news was heat is for free. Check that out, tell your friends about it. And the other big thing that we want to pass on, we don't necessarily want to say too much about it now, but um as a conclusion to our grand Larson May. Um, and as a follow-up to today's conversation on 1991's Hudson Hawk, we are planning a part two discussion where we're in talks with having a very special guest join us. So we're looking at releasing a bonus episode in the coming days. So just watch for that. Boom. Busy month. Tell all your friends to check us out, especially if you like these movies. All right, ramblers, let's get rambling. 
Let's break into Hudson Ladies Hawk. Ladies and gentlemen of the board, and Minerva, let's give it up for Hudson Hawk. Minerva. Minerva. Hello. Bunny, ball, ball. So, Hawkmeister, we got you clothes, great hotel, and a 250,000 lira per diem. That's $200 a day, so we can get a hooker and some tequila. Veto, Darwin. I guess we see who wears the penis in his family, huh? For God's sake, somebody chain this convict. Listen, Hawkey, this might be hard to believe, but I'm just a regular Joe. I just want to be happy. And happiness comes from the achieving of goals. It's just that when you've made your first billion by the age of 19, it's hard to keep coming up with new ones. But now, finally, I got myself a new goal. Wild domination! All right. Hudson Hawk was directed by Michael Lehman and produced by Joel Silver. And it was written by... There's a bit of a story. We'll get into that with where this came from, how it was written. But credited with the screenplay are Daniel Waters and Stephen D'Souza. And it comes from a story written by Robert Kraft and Bruce Willis himself. So Bruce Willis is plays a character named Hudson Hawk. He is our star. The film also stars Danny Aiello, Andy McDowell, Richard E. Grant, Sandra Bernhard, few other people. James Coburn is in there. David Caruso is in there. Uh, so there's a, a number of number of familiar faces. The story of Hudson Hawk, I guess I'll describe it this way. A skilled cat burglar named Eddie Hawkins. Everyone calls him Hudson Hawk. This is Willis, of course, is released from prison and he's just looking for a normal life, maybe a nice cappuccino and just hang out at the bar that he co-owns with his friend Tommy. That is Danny Aiello. Uh, soon after his release, like like just hours after his release, he is blackmailed. <laughs> Immediately after his release. <laughs> He's blackmailed, and then he continues to get blackmailed by different parties into stealing uh, ancient Italian artifacts. All these groups and parties, which include his parole officer and a group of gangsters known as the Mario Brothers, one of whom is Sylvester Stallone's brother, Frank, actually, mm-hmm. um, all these parties, I, I think, if I'm understanding things correctly, work for this uh, billionaire power couple, Darwin and Minerva Mayflower. So that's Sandra Bernhard and Richard E. Grant. And they're just a bored, power-hungry billionaire duo who do weird things with their tongues. We'll probably get to it. Um, we will get to it. <laughs> so, it's on some kind of a list. <laughs> I won't. I won't say which list, but it's on a list. It's got to make it to a list, okay? Uh, so Hudson doesn't want to do really any of these jobs, but he eventually gives in and he embarks on these various art heists with his buddy Tommy Aiello. Um, the Mayflowers—they know these stolen art pieces and artifacts actually contain machinery components to rebuild a legendary alchemy machine that turns lead into gold i think that's what's going on here and then along the way some other characters sort of swoop in and we've got um andy mcdowell shows up and she's She's sort of mysterious and then you've got 
James Coburn, who shows up at one point and is using some of the moves he learned from his days as Bruce Lee's uh, pupil. That's in here. So there, there's so it looks like Lee Marvin on from the set of the Dirty Dozen in one of so, his final scenes. There is stuff to chat about. Um, as the story goes, around the late 70s, 79, 80, a young Robert Kraft, a musician, was playing with his band in Greenwich Village one day when the bartender, one Bruce Willis, a struggling actor, hops up on stage with his harmonica and accompanies the band. Uh, so Willis and Kraft become friends at that point, and Willis, just in hanging out with them, learns all of Kraft's songs. And then at one point, uh, Robert Kraft says, why don't you put words to one of these songs? So one of the songs is called The Hudson Hawk, and Willis writes this story uh just in by way of these lyrics about a cat burglar named hudson hawk um who along with his mentor tommy five-tone messina uh rob places in the new york area so that i think is the source uh of the story credit for bruce willis and robert Kraft. after the success of die hard uh willis approached joel silver and stephen d'souza about this sort of passion project and the song that he wrote the lyrics for and and <laughs> could you imagine the conversation by the way i wrote this song 10 hey, years ago <laughs> hey joel do you want to hear my idea <laughs> uh, so anyway he, he approaches like and t- to be fair joel silver and steven d'souza like they've they've got their their fingerprints all over successful action movies in the 80s so this is a really big play i think for willis to say hey let's let's see if we can turn this Hudson Hawk thing into a film. So that's what happened. The studio is sort of excited by the names involved with this, uh, D'Souza and Silver and and Willis. And this is coming, mind you, after Willis had Die Hard, Die Hard 2, um, and even Look Who's Talking uh, was a monster hit as well, sort of on the comedy side of things. So, you know, Willis had some big hits under his, under his belt at this point. He was even coming off quite a bit of comedy cred from the show Moonlighting. Uh, so... Yeah, this was very, very enticing. Screenwriter Dan Walters, sorry, Dan Waters and Michael Lemon, they end up being brought into this because of their work on Heathers. And, you know, in addition to that, a lot with casting, Isabella Rossellini was originally supposed to be cast as Anna, but then she ended up being replaced by Annie McDowell. And Willis had always said like this was a project for him that he wanted to sort of capture the spirit of Top Cappy or To Catch a Thief, this is sort of, I guess, how he saw this project. There were a lot of rumors that emerged from the set that it was a very problemed production. Um, I did a little digging. I couldn't find too much specific. There were uh, major budget overruns, from what I understand. There was talk of some clashes between Lehman and Willis. Um, I kept seeing the word chaos anywhere where I was trying to read up about this, but I don't really have any good stories. Richard E. Grant felt the film was a bit of a disaster. And I think that he was frustrated because he was cast as the Sheriff of Nottingham in Prince of Thieves, but he had to turn it down because he was obligated to stick around for reshoots on Hudson Hawk. So he could very well have been (laughs) Sheriff of Nottingham. Uh, So there's that, I suppose. Yeah. And as I mentioned, the film allegedly went quite a bit over budget um, at a time where TriStar and Columbia were struggling. And we talked about this in another episode, maybe it was on The Rocketeer, about how Sony swept in right around this time to 
to save uh, TriStar. Anyway, I think we talked about Colombia and TriStar. I think, and uh, I think, can't remember. That was some some eighties movie we were talking about. Some something from the Lad Company. Yeah, I sort of forget myself too. Please tell me it's Gremlins. No, it's not. Don't think so. Anyway, anyway. At, some, at some point we were talking about the whole Sony thing. Uh, at any rate. <clears throat> Moving along, the uh, Hudson Hawk was released in May 1991. In North America, it bombed. It made a very dismal $17 million in uh, North America. That that is, And it was a significant Hollywood summer release. And $17 million, it was really, 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 really bad. Um, I didn't realize this until I was sort of reading up on it. But the film made quite a bit more money overseas so worldwide mm-hmm. it made around a hundred million dollars so it made another 80 million in its in its release throughout the rest of the world so that's was sort of an interesting piece it still did end up losing quite a bit of money um by the time you factor in the marketing and, and what have you uh and it probably exacerbated tristar's uh financial position at the time but i anyway i'll get into what i recall later um this was TriStar's last film, actually, before merging with Columbia. Before uh, before merging with Columbia, so this did not do any favors for the accountants involved with the studio. Uh, it was released. The critics were not friendly in any way at all. It had a cinema score of C plus, which is actually quite low for cinema score. Siskel and Ebert both gave it big thumbs down, as did most everyone else. Janet Maslin called it a sour, misconceived misfire. Uh, Chris Hicks, he he had this quote, it is a solid contender for the longest 95 minutes in movie history. And Hudson Hawk went on to win three Razzies, including Worst Picture, Worst Director, Worst Screenplay. He was also nominated for the Worst Film of the Decade in the Razzies. So this is where we come in to give Hudson Hawk a more careful appraisal. Jakob, were you able to catch the excitement on this one? Did you catch the hawk? Look. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I have a tendency to be hyperbolic occasionally. Occasionally. Mm-hmm. But I, I I love this movie. Like, I'm not even cool. kidding. I love like i hear this nonsense like longest 95 minutes in like what are you people on <laughs> this is this is just the <clears> best <throat> i've seen this a number of times granted most of these times were i want to say 15 to 20 years ago <laughs> it was a i think a vhs rental experience and then i think i may have had it uh, taped off of tv so it was on rotation when I was a youngster. And um, I, you know what? I dig it. And I can know we just, like, a week ago, we talked about sneakers and you were like, can can you just like, why don't you just veg out and then just, you know, just take it in. And then you're like, this is a movie that commits to the, to the ridiculousness con- of, of its conceit. This is a movie that really goes balls out we're, we're, we're being ridiculous we're not really taking anything but we're making an effort and i think i like when movies make an effort it's stupid i know it's not shakespeare but it's damn near close 
<laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I, I don't know. There's there's just something. I, I, maybe this is just when Bruce Willis still had hair and he was still quite young and and sort of the sort of had the sort of I don't know the boyish sort of charm about him. This movie just is a ton of fun for me. It's so funny. It's it's not even it's not even real. I'll just leave it at this for now. I I love the. Um, like it's it's hard to like the story because the story is kind of stupid. I mean, this the movie's kind of stupid. Everything is about it is thoroughly elevated. Everything's heightened. Nothing makes sense, but equally, it just it works on a level of like a you know like a scary movie type parody, like the, like the Wayans Brothers parody or like a Leslie Nielsen Jim Zucker Abrahams parody. However, equally, and I hope this is going to be a part of the conversation, it also takes itself seriously when it when it really needs to. So it's equally there's there are these moments of action, there's moments of excitement. It's violent. <laughs> so I feel like the closest comparison to and to anyone, if I had to make a make a recommendation, it's like if if you like movies like <laughs> Gremlins and Gremlins Two, this is a this is a best Joe Dante movie that Joe Dante never made. I'm gonna leave it at that, and I hope I'm I'm going I'm I'm doing this movie justice because I absolutely adore it. It's such a fun time for me. It's almost like co- like a comfort watch. So yeah, cool. Over wow. to you. <laughs> wow, hated it. <laughs> First time watch for me. Um, I certainly recall Hudson Hawk being released back in '91. Uh, I recall it getting butchered butchered almost immediately um you know because i was reading the entertainment weeklies and the premier magazines at the time and you know i forget if it got an f and ew but it wouldn't surprise me like there was just a level of hatred for this and that quickly became the film's reputation um you know that and the fact that it was a bomb and i think that there were uh articles that you know hudson hawk dooms tristar uh, you know, the, these types of things. And and that's sort of the reputation that Hudson Hawk has for me. So, you know, I, I know about him being a cat burglar and I know it being a little bit quirky and I know about it, you know, uh, Bruce Willis being the lead and, you know, some of the, these basics, but I didn't really know too much about this. Um, it's interesting. We're talking about a film here, Hudson Hawk, that um, to me, in a way, we just talked about the Rocketeer reminds me of the Rocketeer because the Rocketeer I didn't see in ever. And then in 1991, like it just, it seemed to fail at the box office and that's the reputation that that film had for me. Um, So it's, it's interesting how I latch on to these impressions of films without seeing them. And, and, you know, like I shouldn't do that because, you know, I love film and stuff, but it's just natural. And it's things that it's something that people do, right. Is they form these opinions and they shouldn't. So I was watching this, expecting this to be a, a dud of some sort. Um, but you know what? It isn't. What surprised me, this is really a comedy. And not all of this comedy lands. And Jakob, you said it right. That I do mean <laughs> not all of it lands. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> comedy is a very personal thing. Uh, but anyway, so it doesn't always land for me. And, and you, you hit a few things that are very true like in terms of following this as as a heist movie and as following this for the for plot sake and trying to follow everything that's going on that gets a little dicey because you know it, it there's a lot of silliness in here uh you know and 
I don't even know if I'm understanding all this, but you know what? Something else I made a note of is Gremlins 2. This follows <laughs> Gremlins 2 type of issue in terms of how it was received, and uh, we'll, we'll get into it. Um, but I, I'll, I'll tell a little bit of a, a story, and I think that this sort of forms what Hudson Hawk's reputation became. Several years ago, um, my, when my wife and I were dating, actually, and we were hanging out at her place, and I went to the fridge, and I had a little cup of yogurt poured out in a, a little dish for me, and I was going to put it in my lunch the next day, but I really wanted that. And and so I went to get it in the fridge, and the lights were off because we were watching a movie, and I just went to the fridge, and I sort of grabbed it, and I, I took it watching with me a movie. to the couch, and I started to eat this yogurt, and I was expecting it to be cherry yogurt, and I was because I like cherry yogurt. There was a still sample. <laughs> it was condensed mushroom soup that my wife had in a separate, a separate dish. Uh, the same sample. dish, but you know, with dim light, my expectations, and that was the most putrid bite of anything I think I'd ever had. Um, but it was really particularly disgusting because my expectations were something totally different, and I think that people instantly put their nose up and and oh this this is revolting and this is sort of the the knee-jerk reaction i think that audiences had in north america at least to hudson hawk because they thought they were getting a heist film they thought that they might have been getting some sort of cross between maybe dick tracy and die hard and boy oh boy this ain't it right this this is a comedy and it's, it's sort of a light-hearted romp and you know if you watch this with the same hat that you'd watch something like the three amigos then, you know, I think that you're going to get a lot more out of it. And uh, I 100% believe that this here is territory that Joe Dante would explore and has explored. And yeah, I, I, like I said, I, I said, this reminds me of Gremlins 2 in a way. So I'll leave it at that. And maybe we'll jump into the idea of this expectation of people. And the studio was marketing it from what I recall and and from what I understand, just what I was reading, they were marketing as an action film and as a heist film. Is this a heist film? Does this even belong in this month that we're talking about heists for what that's worth? Well, yeah, it does. I mean, just because it involves heist elements, cut, cut burglars. It's a heist film the way like a Pink Panther is a heist film, right? In a way, I think this is connected at the hip with movies like The Pink Panther. I, I think they, they do make, note of david niven somewhere in the film yeah i think I yeah think so so it's it makes mentioned. sense to me and then they made so they make these mentions and i feel like this movie is fully self-aware as well this is mm-hmm. sentient <laughs> storytelling <laughs> right All right but then uh and in the same way i think as yeah i think it, like when you name drops to catch a thief which is a hitchcock film where i'm i, I want to say like i'm a little bit more ambivalent about um <clears throat> But to catch a thief and films like North by Northwest, they're, they're in, in Hitchcock's catalog where they're sort of movies that were a little bit more self-aware. And then, I mean, he had his sort of like a own tree side when, I'm, you know, like when there was a sex scene in there, he would just cut to a train going to a tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> For yeah. reals. That's, like, I don't know if you've seen any of these films, but that's kind of how Hitchcock rolled, right? Um, <clears throat> so I feel it's kind of picking up on the same legacy in that way and it works because i 
I want to say like the heist element works for me for one particularly very important reason. The gimmick of using classic songs as a part of their mechanic, right? Like Danny Aiello and 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 Bruce Willis, they have these moments where they just talk about like oh just they they name drop these songs and then they know the running times, right? Mm-hmm. Um and it turns out this is for use for them. This is how they synchronize when they do different things. So they will go into this sort of action auction house and then they they go and pick a song. It's like, oh, three minutes, 50 seconds is going to take us. And they go like, and, you know, they'll do their thing. They'll just like, I don't know, just defeat lasers or whatever. And then you don't know, why are they doing this? Oh, right. Because they all have to then converge at very specific moments uh, in time later on and they meet at exact location at exact time because they all know the song by heart and they know exactly where they are as a result of that and that for me makes makes this sort of the makes the procedural part of the heist element interesting cool see for me i didn't catch it as a timed thing but i really enjoyed that and to me that said this is the type of movie this is this is why gremlins 2 can you know go and be bonkers and do whatever it wants it can break out into song and it can break out into a dance number and to me that's sort of that's what that element was here it was just this fun moment that is making this sort of a special environment for for the film but that's sort of an interesting piece that's an interesting piece that uh, you know that it's also functional for the heist and it later becomes a uh, like a camaraderie thing because it but later like when they infiltrate the castle where uh, Dalton and Minerva are just doing whatever they, the hell they're doing right they're just they don't split up they just sing along <laughs> so uh, so it's almost like a ah they're doing it because it's fun but like initially in the auction house they they I think they actually does have a, have a functional reason to be there which is interesting but yeah I like for for me this is what makes the heist element interesting because. Uh, equally, some it it is you know, it's the Da Vinci Code before Da Vinci Code was cool, you know. <laughs> so it's yeah. like a, with a heist element because it, the, and the heist element's made by the sort of the cat burglar, but it's it's kind of like an homage to a, a very specific era of mm-hmm. Hollywood filmmaking because I think it's honestly making fun. It's making like a live action Looney Tunes cartoon based on the Pink Panther. Yeah. That that's a reasonable way to put it. So, what went wrong with the marketing? Oh, have you seen the poster to it, by the way? Yeah, like the main the main poster, I believe, is just him swinging with catch the catch the excitement, catch the hawk, isn't it? Or yes, yeah, so there's one poster like this tells you absolutely nothing, mm-hmm. and there's the other with Bruce <laughs> Willis's face going like, <laughs> right, <laughs> and then in the front there's this sort of the Da Vinci's plane, and again no idea how to take this so you you can yeah i don't think they had an idea how to market this uh other than bruce willis isn't it right yeah that's kind of that's, i feel like this is where the marketing's going wrong because maybe they didn't have the guts to kind of go and take arguably one of the biggest action stars of the time who's just about broke just a few years earlier effectively subverted the 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 muscle action man right a, 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 you know 
Like we had the sort of era of Mr. M- Mr. Mom can be Batman, and mm-hmm. then you know Mr. Moonlighting can be uh, can be Arnold, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe this was a bit of a risk on behalf of someone in in the students. Like we can't go and like it would look like we're backtracking. It's like we're he's not a comedy star; he's an action star. So we have to bank him bank on him being a star. It's just no, but he's totally a comedic actor. Just use it. Use it. Like even in like one of the reasons why John McClane is what he is is because Bruce Willis had a fantastic comedic timing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, they didn't know what they're doing. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I tend I, I tend to agree. So why do you think it landed in in Europe and you know in other jurisdictions? Because I don't know if- because in Europe we're just a little bit more sort of relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> Because what I might add to that is, like, I wonder if, um, and I think we talked about this with Rocketeer when it opened poorly, is you get this immediate feedback, this immediate reaction that, you know, the posters were not working, the campaign's not working, the first weekend is is garbage. We have time to pivot because it opened in Australia in June. Hudson Hawk opened in June uh, down under. And in the rest of the world, mostly in July of the same of the same year. That's sort of what I gathered. So I wonder if they pivoted and I wonder if there was like a, a difference in the TV ads or I just, it just I'm, seems to me that something might've happened, but I, I don't have any evidence of this. I don't know what I would maybe say. This is, I don't know. I would have to probably go and check whether there is a, if there is a delay between what's in the U S and and the US and say European release, for instance, mm-hmm. whether there's a difference between what's on the weekend of the opening. So what's the uh, counter-programming to it, right? Mm-hmm. I would assume that Hearts on Hawk was counter-programming to something. <laughs> Ooh, uh, that's an interesting... So I, th- I suppose this is a, you know, uh, let's investigate sort of moments. Hudson Hawk... So Hudson Hawk, <laughs> Memorial Day weekend. So it was the big summer weekend. What was what was released against it? Backdraft. Backdraft made money, didn't it? Yeah. Oh, and what I about Bob? What about Bob? Yep. What about him? <laughs> and what else do we have? By the way, did you know that you know in the Razzies, uh, worst picture went to Hudson Hawk and worst actor went to Kevin Costner for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, <laughs> <laughs> which is a couple, which is a couple weeks after this release, I believe. Yeah. So Kevin Costner beat a, a one out of a crowd of Andrew Dice Clay, as in himself in Dice Rules, Sylvester Stallone and Oscar Vanilla Ice and Cool as Ice and Bruce Willis and Hudson Hawk. <laughs> So see, scandalous. Yeah, Oscar is a film in there, which I came across and just sort of reading up here. And that's an interesting one because that was also a bomb. And mm-hmm. did you say, no, uh, Bruce Willis won the Razzie, right? No, you no, know, Kevin Costner won the Kev- Razzie. Oh, yeah, you just said that. Um, but Stallone is an interesting case in here because Oscar was a complete bomb. And 
Now, again, that's another film I haven't seen. That's like a, a comedy, period comedy or something, is it not? Like I've seen this, I don't know, 20 odd years ago. So like, don't don't quote me on this. I, I, I vaguely remember it being kind of sort of ridiculous. But then again, what did I know when at, at the right page of 13? I knew that Heat was amazing. <laughs> but it's it's another film that I wonder if something that the studios were struggling with at the time in finding when you have a, a mishmash of tone or if you are playing around with the comedy action mix, or if you're taking Stallone and putting him in a comedy, if you're taking Willis and putting him in a comedy, but it's still, it's, it sort of smells like an action. Like we've talked about this in the context of uh, stuff like the horror comedy in the, in the eighties, the eighties was this sort of time where it felt that a lot of genres were sort of, you know, mixing and mashing, especially comedy, make, you know, make everything a little bit of a comedy. So you have action comedy and horror comedy. Um, and at times I think that again, going to what I said about expectations, that if you're not communicating exactly what the film is Mm -hmm. and you've got a, a mix mash of, you know, tone and style and genre, then the audience might go, I don't like that. Sort of like me and the mushroom soup. I mean, I want to say that um, at the time, maybe Schwarzenegger's to blame <laughs> a little bit because he would have convinced people in Hollywood, like these sort of like the big money dispensing machines that actually this is a good idea to take these sort of big action heroes and put them in comedic environments because... Twins was a success, and then in 1990, Kindergarten Cop was a success, yeah? But see, this is all the Reitman effect, because he's... It is, yeah. He's all... He's he's marrying these genres to perfection with Ghostbusters and Twins, you know, at least, you know, not even thinking, like, critically twins about is kind the of a Twins is kind of like an out-and-out comedy, like, out of the two, like, Kindergarten mm-hmm. Cop is kind of like a, this action comedy, right? But the marketing of that, you know, you know exactly what you're getting, and you know the the this the the pitch is very clear, mm-hmm. you know, in the poster, in the concept. Where I would suggest maybe it isn't with Hudson Hawk, like maybe sort of. That's kind of what I was, yeah, alluding to that. You know, like well, in, if you want to, if you see a poster to Kindergarten Cop, you kind of you kind of see the uh, the clash of genres in in the posters. Just how here's this big muscle man, a fish mm-hmm. out of water. He's gonna have to deal with little kitties and then wipe their little tushies and then no <laughs> there's no more mommy <laughs> there's no mommy here, no more Mr. Kimbo, I have to go to the bathroom. Nope. There is no bathroom. Where was I? Yeah, meanwhile that's on hog. Like you don't like you don't have to serve because the there is no contrast anymore because we've already di- not diluted, but we've subverted the uh the archetype. Because mm-hmm. he's already a comedic actor, so you can't really hang your hat on this again. So maybe this is this is this is the issue. I feel like this this should have been marketed as look, we're doing a parody of a cat burglar film. This is supposed to be funny, mm. but equally, maybe for me this is the allure of the film because it's equally also exciting because it has these moments when I don't know he just drops out of the back of an ambulance on a on a gurney. <laughs> and it's and a genuine I, action set piece, right? Yeah, and I, I think that studio probably thought that that was the that was the type of thing that we're going to sell this on. 
I think they were and, trying to sell the Sondas, right? Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And uh, But it's just not that type of film. And so I, I can appreciate audiences feeling, like, what you is know, jeez, <laughs> what, what is this? What is this? This is not yogurt at all. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it sounds like you would agree with me that this is, this is comedy first, comedy parody before like, anything else. Put in a trailer. I I, I really want to need, want to tra- see a trailer to this because I haven't seen this. Put it in a trailer. Andy Mag Andy McDowell. Yeah, don't, not Roddy McDowell. Andy McDowell. <laughs> Andy. Yeah. Yeah, Andy McDowell, speaking to a crucifix that lights up when it talks. <laughs> and sell this on that. <laughs> Different crowd you're you're gonna attract. Yeah. <laughs> or like or or the Pope watching. Mr. Ed, and then tapping the television on the with a stick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is this is like top secret or something. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's kind yeah. of on the same shelf. And then I think yeah. like, if people don't get it, they need to kind of I don't know. Get real. Where's my get real? <laughs> Total fucking bullshit. <laughs> Where's my get real? I need to hold on. Okay. You, yeah, you continue. I'm gonna find my get real because it's gonna come in handy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. I like. I. I think totally that this. If people think that this is a comedy, then they're gonna completely react differently. But I think that they're expecting a tentpole summer production around action, which is a fair expectation. Um, you know, especially get real. There it is. Um, you know, like a film to re- be released on Memorial Day with Bruce Willis this time. And, you know, you see a scene of someone falling out of an ambulance riding a gurney. I think totally the audience is going to expect this to be in action. And that's not what they get. And I can appreciate them sticking their nose up at it. But with any comedy, it's just comedy is a matter of taste and preference. Um, so the comedy can sort of land or not land with an audience. But if they know it's a comedy, it's a different story. Here, people think this... I think generally the reaction, this is stupid because they're expecting something else. Oh, I mean, I don't know if this attracts a different kind of demographic to it's like the, the Bruce Willis loving dad demographic for some reason that doesn't have a sense of humor. I mean, like if you like Bruce Willis because you enjoyed Die Hard and you walk into a comedy with Bruce Willis and he can't enjoy his comedy then I think you didn't really understand what why Die Hard was so great right because half of the reason why Die Hard films work or half of the reason why action films with Bruce Willis work the way they do is because Bruce Willis is funny and he is funny he is he is funny but it's usually a dry humor especially if you're if you're looking at sort of his, his action roles it is a dry humor um here it's very much in your face. This is very slapstick. This is very Joe Dante. This is, you know, it's like very, Joe Dante meets Terry Gilliam. <laughs> it's yeah. And and it's like it's it's 1980s blatant. We're going for the laugh here <clears throat> type of type of stuff. How do you see Bruce Willis here as flexing his uh sort of his his producer type of muscle? Does he have a producer credit on this? I don't I don't know if he has a producer credit on this, but I see him flexing his his comedy his, muscle. Yeah. Do you, do you see him as... Joel uh, Silver has a producer credit on this. I don't know who else yeah, does. I don't think Bruce Willis uh, does. I, I will say, like, he, he's in his element. Like, I love mm-hmm. when he's... Because you can see that 
uh, maybe this is this is this is me talking uh, with the uh, sort of acquired body of knowledge where of where Bruce Willis's career went and how he eventually adopted the persona of this sort of the solemn John McClane, right? Um, almost to the point of this being parodied, right? That just like when the, he walks on set, he's John McClane, right? Like he active, actively believes that he's just like you know, he he's the action hero and just like Bruce, no, you're just an actor. Okay, but I, I honestly believe that he's always been doing this um, self-awaredly. Like he's always mm-hmm. putting this on as an act, and he's take and he's and he's getting the, the time. He's having the time of his life. He's just having a ball because he's a fun guy. I, I feel like he's just. A, I know. I know some people who probably worked for him would probably say he's rude. He was rude on set, or he's just me. I I don't know. He comes across as a genuinely fun dude to be around because he just he's a prankster like he can he's kind of like i don't know i don't know he has this sort of boyish energy about him i like him i really like him he, and he, i like the fact that he he, he give him the space to you know to dance a little bit to uh, tell a few jokes or to just do a few few really stupid now i um, want to see what, he, what what did he do right after this because i wonder if this sort of hurt his brand Die Hard Three, <laughs> probably was it? Uh, let's double check. Look, uh, you know, I'm, I come. This is gonna be a hard one, I suppose, because you know, I come. I can really love this movie, and then some. Something tells me that you want to poke holes through this amazing film. <laughs> no, uh, nobody's full north striking distance. Oh, he wasn't loaded weapon as John McClane. Um, yeah, Last Boy Scout is next. Last Boy Scout, Death Becomes Her. So there we go. So I was wondering if it was going to be a few of these action films, if he sort of doubles down and tries to rebuild his brand after after this, doing you know films like The Last Boy Scout and Striking Distance and that type of thing. I can't, I can't, um, no, oh, he's oh. got Death Becomes Her in there. So. Uh, you know, and and that I would say is sort of a similar similar tone. Like, like I'm not a fan of Death Becomes Her. Just I don't know. It's Robert Zemeckis is not for everyone, but uh, but I'm just I'm just gonna say like I don't really believe that Bruce Willis needs to rebuild rebuild his brand after his comedic outings. Like it's he really would have to look at like he really would would have to look at his sort of the uh, the the. B-tier action films that he was in. That these would be the ones that kind of just pigeonhole him and destroy his mm-hmm. brand. That to the to a, to the point that you know, like Pulp Fiction was something that you know re- repaired his brand, right? Yeah, and I'm I'm looking at Twelve Monkeys. He was in 1995, and Twelve Twelve Monkeys is again one of those, you know, uh, more self-aware pieces, right? Yeah. No, I was just looking to see if there's some sort of pattern in sort of what we get here. But one thing that I always like about Willis is that he, he is sort of adventurous and he does uh, uh, Pulp Fiction in there and, you know, does some small roles and stuff like Nobody's Fool. And, you know, I like I've always sort of liked the guy. Um, I don't I I feel that he's always sort of similar, you know, in a way. Um, so he's not to me. I don't see him as having necessarily a whole bunch of range and in in here he's leaning more into 
you know, the comedy side. And I, I'm, I'm not totally sold on, on all the comedy here and some of his line deliveries. You know, <laughs> I just they just don't really totally land with me. But, you know, I, I like the guy and I appreciate what he's doing here. Um, and because this is a passion project, like, you know, mm-hmm. basically this whole idea went back to him and Robert Croft sort of crooning together and playing harmonica and writing the song based on a wind off of a river. Um, you know, so th- this means something to him. Um, yeah. And I guess I keep going to the fact that like this, this is something he's, he's pushing for. And uh, th- this, what am I trying to say? Like he's, he's big man on campus here. And I think that this is the film where he's sort of pushing his own project forward, maybe mm-hmm. in a way that he, hasn't before which sort of brings you like i wonder how much power he has on set and probably a lot so that's sort of leading me into my next thought is where does uh where does our uh writer here uh, well the team from from heathers michael lemon and daniel waters where do they fit into this because heathers was was one of those uh big independent films to come out that that had a voice that you know was very darkly comic speaking of uh, genre mixing and matching right there so uh lemon sort of came to the production with this element of being a comic director and with a very sharp-witted comic director so how does he fit in here with this passion project of willis's I don't know quite, quite, quite honestly because I haven't seen Headers yet as okay. of this recording. This is on the list of things to do. Um, like my recollection was like, like when when you say Michael Lehman, I feel air, I think Airheads, right? So I kind of almost tacitly associate him with this sort of like weird comedy anyway. So I kind of feel like tonally he fits, um, whether he fits as a result of just having gravitated to that uh because heather may heather's maybe different i don't know maybe you can tell me but then i, I don't know it is this like an age-old sort of story of like an indie director coming onto a massive production and then and then just think things kind of getting chaotic because the production is bigger than people kind of are, are used <clears throat> to or whatever but for me this works because this movie is a little bit chaotic it's a, it's a little bit ca- cacophonic <laughs> like it's um it, it's a bit dissonant but it, it's kind of it's allure the same way that gremlins 2 has its sort of and en- this sort of dissonant energy about it right like it's like it's almost at some point you just stop following you just enjoy the chaos and then you realize that these are collections of skits and then some of them land some of them like, like you know like there are different types of stand-up comedy mm-hmm like there are stand like there's Ed, there's your eddie murphy or bill bear where these people tell you long stories um, and they will have a payoff at the end. They will have these sort of ups and downs. They will they'll be carefully crafted. And then you know, there's your Jimmy Cars or whoever. They're people who just tell you quick jokes, and they just line these jokes, and then and and the sum total of the experiences is is, is essentially like an average of like I laughed more than I didn't laugh, right? So I mm-hmm. feel this is one of those comedies that eventually you just stop following the grand conceit because there's not going to be a big comedic payoff at the end because there isn't one it's the little things that matter you know like and <laughs> when the dog gets hey ball by ball and just gets shot out of a window 
Like these are these yeah. are moments out, out of which this movie is con- constructed, and I'm I don't know where Michael Lehman sort of falls into this picture, whether what he brings to the story, whether this is all on the page, and this is just writers uh, letting their hog looks proverbially. I don't know. Maybe you can tell me because you've seen Heather's, right? Yeah, I saw Heather's, and Heather's sort of stands out as this gem at the end of the '80s, which I liken a bit to something like Raising Arizona or even some Sam Raimi type of humor. Like it's really uh, dark and it's very stylish in its delivery. And so I, I feel that Lehman probably becomes this, you know, he's he's one of the, the it guys, the it boys uh, during this era. And I think that you may have quite possibly hit the... Uh, hit the nail on the head when you say it's it's similar to you got this indie guy who gets sort of sucked into a big production and then from there anything can happen like i would liken this experience maybe to something like what happens to um say uh well the mcu right now they sort of plumb the chloe Zhao's and you know these uh <laughs> he's like a ytt of his time is what he is <laughs> he's so, yeah sort of um coming or, out of this sort of like hunt for wilder people yeah and all of a sudden like do thor <laughs> you know what that's that's feels like what like what this is and <clears throat> i don't know the dynamic here but i, I feel that quite possibly it's more if if bruce willis has a vision it might be more of his that's that's coming to the fore because it's his character and he's big man on campus you know but i don't know but at any rate it does feel like i'm sort of nitpicking here but i'm, I'm really not i'm just i'm just i'm really curious about this this dynamic and you know like it's coming off as a comedy it's 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 stylish it's big it's it's sort of good looking in a way like the production design is is great on you know on this and i the I think sets the sets are great, right? Like, the, like I say, like Ooh. the production design is fantastic, and I think that that's something that uh, Layman probably has an eye for because Heather's is such a gorgeous movie. Um, mm-hmm. So you know this this makes sense. And uh, anyway, like yeah, like it's to me, it's just coming off as as a comedy, and some of it's fun, and some of it's ridiculous, and uh, you know, is is what it is. I mean, it's kind of like the com- you know. I don't have a nostalgic connection to it, but I, I think like Princess Bride is probably something close to it in, in tone as well, because it's equally like an adventure, but it's it's kind of just weirdly taking taking uh portraits at itself as well. Mm-hmm. Especially if the movie starts like Shrek, like with this big book opening up and a guy giving you a narration and you see like these sort of again live action animation kind of skits of like oh why doesn't mona lisa have a smile because she had absolute terrible teeth <laughs> right <laughs> right and this and then, feels to yeah. me like something like that you'd get in chevy chase comedy right like uh, in, in something that like three amigos now i, I saw that ages yeah, ago but i keep thinking of that that dynamic you know that that type of joke you know i suppose uh, chevy chase comedy would be a little bit more sexual true <laughs> True. <laughs> just saying no but it's you're totally right like this is i mean for me the the immediate comparison is like the burbs gremlins gremlins to that kind of mm-hmm. comedy where like it's maybe even yeah go 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 step further and say like tim burton kind of has a similar sense of humor where it's a little bit out there a little bit yeah. sort of like you know, just like oh it's it's a little bit inappropriate tonally mm-hmm. but you kind of you know like it's Pee Wee Pee Wee's Big Adventure mm-hmm. has a very similar similar vibe 
tone aesthetically is completely different. Yes. So sit down. Whoever is now just screaming into their phone. Idiot. This is a different film. No, 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 no. Like you don't get, no. Mm -mm. It's, it just, what matters is the sort of comedic tone. I think this is what this movie is kind of going after. This sort of like a ridiculousness of, of an animated movie without actually having anything animated. Yeah. And I, and I go back to the idea of studios trying to sell a product like this or Oscar the same, the same year and that they don't really necessarily understand the product that they have. And actually, like we've mentioned a couple of these uh, projects, but I would say uh, gremlins too, same thing like that, that sort of crashed and burned a little bit. Like it didn't make as much money as certainly that, that they had hoped. Um, and uh, compared to the original and i think that if you've got something that's wilder than the expectation that has been set forth then you're going to get uh some i don't like it type of type of reaction is it possible that the invention of pg-13 ruined this movie because if you think about Mm -hmm. like gremlins came in before the this rating was was a thing right Mm-hmm. It was actually one of the reasons why it was yep. became a thing, right? Like we talked about this, and then because it, like Gremlins had this issue of like, okay, it's like because Joe Dante didn't doesn't have this sort of the balance right of like a, of someone like Spielberg who would just make something that's still for the whole family, but it's a little bit dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas he would just go on full tilt of just like there's dismemberment in this kids film, <laughs> why, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, like you, you have this sort of movie that's you could have has this appeal of a comedy that could be for the entire family, with also throats being slit, decapitations, yeah, um, and f bombs, f bombs, yeah. and you know things of that nature, right? So, like, who who is this for, right? Yeah, the answer is it's for me, yeah. <laughs> but. <laughs> But you know, and I, I mean, I hope I have contributed to the box office with my VHS rental fees. But you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you helped the production in its day. Yeah, um, yeah, and it, it's something too. Like I, you know, just as I was sort of putting effort into coming up with some thoughts on on this, it does feel like the '80s was very much about um escapism and making stuff big and silly and this is the spielberg and the zemeckis like their their projects that you know that's there um but also this the genre mashup i think tim burton that's an excellent shout as well and he's sort of the guy that came along at the the late 80s and he sort of got the tone right but mm-hmm. i i think and ivan reitman is a guy at least for marketing purposes um because you know i love that man as a producer and like the ideas in play i don't necessarily love all the movies but the tone seemed to be perfect when he'd sort of mix and match these these ideas whereas you know hudson hawk well you know like it is what it is i think it's just mismarketed but say something like oscar which again i haven't seen like that's a miss probably because they don't know how to sell it anyway it's just it's just an interesting challenge that studios who are trying to well are we what are we after here escapism are we you know trying to put comedy in the middle of another genre to to sell it and you know sometimes it's just you end up with a miss in marketing um just because you have a dynamic project at your hands i mean does that make sense uh, 
it does, but then in, in in I don't want to defend Oscar and just say, but I think because I haven't seen this in a very very long while, but I just remember it not being funny. That was mm-hmm. kind of the uh, if you take it as a comedy, it's like well take this mu- take this muscle man, put him in a comedy, and then just write him a good set of jokes. They didn't he didn't have good enough jokes to be memorable. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, this thing has the sort of energy of almost a, like maybe it was a bit of a bit ahead of its time because. Um, it's physical comedy on of the sort of um, like the naked guns and top secrets is not that pronounced. Like it doesn't really uh, draw attention to its uh, to itself that way. Mm-hmm. It's almost a little bit more subtle, like um, or subtle. Like it has an SNL energy. Like it's kind of like well, you know, these people are taking the piss, but at the same time, it's kind of like well, they're not really blowing everything too much out of proportion. So, we, so, you, so you can almost sarcastically say like they're not trying to be funny, or they're trying too too hard to be funny occasionally, so they don't get the balance right. Like you know, maybe this is something that's just personal to people when they hear Minerva going, "I've got the power," and they just feel like, "Oh, can you please shut up?" And and I'm just saying like, "Right on, sister." Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is a great joke. <laughs> See, and to me, Hudson Hawk is filled with moments like that where I say to myself, that that's sort of funny. As opposed to like it it doesn't elicit, you know, big laughs at any point. These. I've got a whole list. Oh, good. <laughs> great. Like um, pasta in the thermos. Like yeah. these two guards just eating lunch at work and the guy just takes a bolognese out of a thermos and just tips it out into onto a plate or just guy asks for a ketchup at a restaurant and the guy brings him ketchup in that champagne bucket hilarious <laughs> and, yeah. and shows him like <laughs> do like the vintage <laughs> yeah um but, yeah. one thing and i like physical comedy that comes up in here periodically um i'll mention the the gurney scene which is has some like it's it's a bit of an action set piece but it's also very much played for comedy some of the one-liners in there i i think don't land at least not not with me um but what i really enjoyed about this scene is that it to me it sort of harkens to like a almost like a buster keaton type of fun with cinema and with uh just having fun with a physical props and danger and you know speed <laughs> you know and velocity so that like that had sort of yeah. a, a very uh fun element to it and i think that's sort of what hudson hawk is for me like i, I don't like, again like I, I wish i laughed more because then i feel i'd be a little bit more on your side let's watch um, it properly <laughs> <laughs> but but it does have that fun and it, has, it does have the energy and uh, like i i liked getting that uh you know the, the, the like the buster keaton type of vibe from the gurney scene. I don't know if you had any uh, the thoughts gurney on that. Scene. I mean, for me, the gurney scene is made well. A, there is this action piece to it, but then for me, this make it makes it fun because the the trio of these villains, like this one sort of stupid guy who goes like what, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the guy who doesn't speak, he only has business cards and just like shows what butterfinger and butterfinger, yeah. yeah. And there's this lady who just then shoots the arrows into people. It's just they're just fun to hang out with because they're kind of again like they're cartoon villains like there's this trio mm-hmm. of henchmen hench people right <laughs> um so and and on on top of everything the set piece is incredibly short 
because like the movie is 90 minutes long and this gurney set piece is it's like a minute and it's, we're, we're done here right because it's a globe trotting adventure like all they need is to put him in a box and just lands in rome right yeah literally literally this is how they transport him into rome and like all you do is just like meet james coburn and james coburn is just like slightly like off the off the rails <laughs> just a touch right so i don't know i just for me these are these are these moments like there are these action moments that are just like they come and go so you don't repay it like there's an there's an explosive set piece in the action house where they just ruin stuff right or there's a moment later on where they uh, paralyze these people from the neck down and yes. there are bombs in there and they are suction bombs that they someone stuck s- sticks to their own forehead and they blow themselves up it's a like it like and it just blinks and you miss and we're m- on to the next bit because these are looney tune skits mm-hmm. yeah so you don't even have the opportunity to kind of like this discuss it as a set piece because it's just like no that bruce willis drops out of a, the back of an ambulance or like hang, hanging by like a cab i don't know what a sheet what, a sheet and that's it so it's it's essentially like a road runner skit that's it so all this is like it's it's bugs like imagine bugs bunny doing it and, and daffy duck like that's all this is mm-hmm. oh it's yeah that you know what i think <clears throat> that's an excellent way to put it because this this is the type of thing you get in space jam a few years later yeah, only you don't get Michael Jordan here, and Michael Jordan right. doesn't doesn't have the comedic <laughs> timing uh, to stand toe to toe with Bruce Willis. And this is when Michael Jordan says, "And I took it personally." Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah. To, to me, to to focus on the action of this movie is kind of sort of a mistake because the action is an excuse to to sell you on these Looney Tunes jokes, these sort of conceits. Uh, and scenarios it's not even like the bruce willis line deliveries what sells you on some of some some of his jokes are funny but it's just these situations it's a sitcom without the laugh track to to me the gurney scene is a little bit more than that just just because of the velocity and the zigzagging through traffic and you know yeah, sure but it's but it's yeah. but it's but it's then you know in in 45 seconds it's finished hmm. true that what are your thoughts on Danny Aiello in here? Oh, it's so funny. <laughs> I always what was this. I'm very sensitive about my fucking figure. Because <laughs> here's a guy. His his Academy Award nomination, I think, was a year, two years before. I think he was nominated for Do the Right Thing. Um, so he sort of had a career high here. And you know what? I don't associate Danny Aiello with comedy at all. I associate him with Do being right in... Thing do the right thing and the professional and he's usually some sort of a mobster or you know distinguished business dude and i I think it's i think it's fun to see him in this role with with these types of chops and i think that he and bruce willis are really good friends and that's sort of how this role came about for him Mm -hmm. no i feel like he's very natural in here i I like him i like him a lot he has a few few good lines but then he eventually gets overshadowed by you know minerva and dalton you know like richard e grant and uh because they they're just they overwhelm you with intensity and frequency of their comedy because they just because they're all they're usually sharing the screen with james coburn with this trio of idiots when they'll they'll give him a book and it turns out it's a 
children's book that he's reading out loud. <laughs> That's going to make an appearance. <laughs> so, so, so almost like Danny Aiello's comedy and his sort of just being ca- his casual comedy almost kind of gets overshadowed by a really like him. Yeah. So what about so Richard E. Grant and Sandra Bernhardt? Like, where do you stand with that type of comedy? Because I was sort of grooving with them, and to me, they were there in the right dose because they could get irritating because they are so over the top. Um, but They're they were there. Characters. That's what yeah. they are, right? Yeah. But. My, like my point is I would get it I could get annoyed with characters like this because they're going for loud humor and I'm sort of not necessarily the person that's on board for getting comedy out of screaming which I think is sort of Sandra Bernhard's thing it is in here but Richard E. Grant in particular I find quite hilarious in an over-the-top way mm-hmm. um and I, yeah <laughs> he walks into the auction house 100 million dollars clams this is clams okay and then when he walks in though i don't know if you notice like he he slaps someone in the side of the head as he walks in (laughs) totally randomly like he shoves their head (laughs) it's just it's it's just the great the great fun presence (laughs) yeah the the dog and she, um, she does have this is her i don't almost said fetish this is her tick that she says words twice mm-hmm. it's gonna be coming coming <laughs> so, i don't know it, it, you kind of have to vibe with them i think so i suppose if you're coming into this movie like i'm going to this is a bruce willis action film like maybe people walked in in this into this thinking this is gonna like be like bird on the wire too <laughs> and then it's just like wow it's a bit more out there <laughs> considerably more out there yeah this i i honestly think that people were attending this thinking this was going to be nice strawberry yogurt but it was condensed mushroom soup yeah. on first bite and uh yeah not not strictly fair what do you think of andy mcdowell because she's sort of a now she's something in a way like if you're following the plot like if you don't sort of readjust your tuner she's someone that you think okay well there's there's a reason to follow her because she seems to be a a double agent and you know she's working with the vatican but she's sort of working with the bad guys um so she's someone you can latch on to for plot purposes um but at at the same time you know she's sort of funny what are your thoughts (laughs) if there is anyone in here who kind of doesn't really you know carry their weight <laughs> that's her i think comedically wise because i mm-hmm. think acting wise she's she's great like she, she yeah there are scenes where she sells it like when she speaks to the crucifix or things like that she's she's very good or where she's um in the confessional getting debriefed <laughs> yes <laughs> right so there are moments where she sells it but there are moments where all the other actors but are asked to really climb to these sort of like ridiculous heights like you know when they have to really go into full on live action uh a rendition of an animated um comedy mm-hmm. and like when she just pretends she's a dolphin or something like this and this is when she goes like okay andy this is this is a bit mucho <laughs> what about you do you think we need? Because here's 
As you're talking. This is how Randy Crush song continues. No, maybe in Sex Lies and Videotape, that lovely accent and a few Divine. there. Um, But what I'll say about Andy McDowell, like, I I like Andy McDowell. I wonder here, though, if maybe she needs to be the character that is a little bit more grounded, that doesn't necessarily join the hijinks with the paralysis and the dolphin sounds. And because sometimes a comedy just needs a grounded character, a foil for all the nonsense. And uh, (laughs) she's the girl at Germans, too. Yeah, <laughs> but tell I don't me know about the rules again. Uh, just tell me about the rules. Like, did you forget it? Yeah, <laughs> they cleaned the fish right at the table. <laughs> so, yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, for me, I I think Andy McDowell honestly put some chocolate mousse. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, she she probably helps the film if she's a little bit more grounded because she sort of veers off in directions, which I'm sure we're going to get to unless you want to get into them now, um, in the paralysis scene, which mm-hmm. is, to me, amongst the funnier scenes. But uh, I, I'm debating whether in my head right now, actively, do we need her dolphin sounds? Maybe we do. No, we do not. No. <laughs> I think the, the because film that is fine a, without him. <laughs> because that is a total thing. Uh, but there might be some value to everyone in this is so heightened and, you know, over the top. Do we need someone to sort of anchor this? And no, I think this maybe, kind of feels maybe like we Nat- do. It feels like Natalie Portman and Heath just think like Al Pacino's in the room. I might as well just ham it up a little bit. <laughs> so I might as like, well go big too. It's, yeah, it's kind of like Bruce is going big. I think I can go big. And then everyone's like, shit. <laughs> Do we tell her? No, just keep rolling. Just yeah. just keep just let it just let it happen. Just let it happen. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of like this for me, like I was just I wa- I watch her doing this, I'm just thinking to myself, like, this scene needs George C. Scott in her role instead. Just like Panofa. <laughs> like Day of the Dolphin, Jason <laughs> George C. Scott. Pa no more. <laughs> and, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't, she sells it when she's kind of like the straight nun. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, so we, we don't need like, her to. But then they go back to it. I know, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then, because, you know, repetition legitimizes. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Goodness. James Coburn's good, though. I really like him. Really, he's, 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 he's like Jack Palance in Tango and Cash. He's, he's 100% a Jack Palance type of character. Um, I'm, I'm amused most by Coburn. I guess he's got sort of that uh, distinguished swagger at times, but I am most amused by him whenever he sort of pulls out the, uh, uh, you know, the 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 crane karate moves and and the, he just uh, gets ejected <laughs> uh, out, out of the wall because of the explosion in the back as he's yeah, doing totally. his flying kick. <laughs> yes, it's the best. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Like this movie is so awesome. 
and so stupid. And you just like you watch these moments, you're like, this is kind of stupid. And then just laugh, and then but then you, and you're like, oh look, there's another stupid thing that happened, and you laugh again, and just this is the movie, just for ninety five minutes, and then people say like, is this long for you? Like I I could do another forty five minutes of it, I'll be happy. Like you know, <laughs> want me to rape and balls? Here's your book. <laughs> Uh, what do you think of those guys? So, the- <laughs> <laughs> just the big hulking guy is so funny because he just I, goes into the room, gets shot with arrows, and he just leaves the room. Yeah, just walks walks out. Dave Caruso is sort of amusing. Like he just uh, the scene where there's this weird moment where Caruso is just standing behind Bruce Willis, sort of aping everything he does. <laughs> and it's just, <laughs> he gets it's like, what? What is this? Like I, w- I want to laugh, but I'm also like, what? What is going on? And it's just anyway, it seems pointless, just vibe, just vibe. It's, it's just great. vibe. Yeah, it's just it's just comedy vibe. So and Caruso, like he's so bizarre with his with his costumes and he speaks in all these cards and <laughs> when he dies like he's and i really he's, like to <laughs> but also in addition like he's got like 50 cards that sort of spill out from uh from whatever because he's wearing this statue costume i don't know where all the cards came from but he's got like 50 cards spill out of everywhere so he's got all these little one-liners for for dropping off cards it's just so it's so weird um I, I can see this not landing, but you know, I think you can. I have to be kind of in the right frame of mind for this. So I suppose maybe this is one of those what you mentioned. Like if it had been marketed the way, like I don't know, Dracula Dead and Loving is <laughs> marketed, <laughs> right? Like maybe this would have, like people would be actively attuned to look for these jokes, like because some of them are quite subtle. Like they're like mm-hmm. almost like Wes Anderson subtle, as in like, hey, <laughs> Mister Hawk, I bought you stamps. And it's like, what do I need stamps for? And then just like, oh, they realize they, they take this underground Vatican mail. Mm-hmm. They put Bruce Willis in a the box. They stamp 150 stamps <laughs> over top of it and they mail him into the Vatican. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is a plot so, conceit. <laughs> he just sticks out of this box and there are just stamps everywhere. On. <laughs> What's the legacy of this film, do you think? And do you think that this film influences others down down the road i'm not sure if it influences others i think it fits in this sort of the uh these sort of like self-aware comedies it just i think um doesn't get mentioned enough as in because it maybe this is the maybe this is its problem as in like like gremlins 2 has this problem mm-hmm. that it's too wacky uh and also at the same time it tries to be this sort of r-rated action comedy equally right not equally but to 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 an enough of an extent that you could convince someone to go and to cut a trailer that's kind of convincing enough to go and see this as an action comedy and you're like why why are these looney tunes characters in here doing why so i don't know what the legacy of this movie i mean the legacy of this movie is in existence because this movie got murdered on on arrival i could so it, I don't think it even exists as a cult classic, which is a sadness to me. Hold on. Oh, I think it's that there's a, a bit of such a, a sadness. <laughs> I think there's a bit of a you know cult following for this. Like just as I mentioned to people in my circles that said we're doing Hudson Hawk, um, different people have <clears> said, <throat> "Oh, that's actually sort of a cool movie." Oh, that's actually sort of a cool movie. Like I generally have gotten positive responses from a number of people that that liked it, and I'm sort of surprised because. 
you know, I know it as having this reputation of, you know, being this sort of flop and, you know, not being received well. So that was a bit of a surprise to me. Um, I wonder, because this was such an emphatic uh, crash at the box office, at least domestically, if part of its legacy is that studios said no to wackiness from this point forward, especially, you know, with a little bit of a track record of some things not not landing like uh, Gremlins 2 and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, just like the, the wacky element that maybe audiences aren't expected is just not something that studios would want to order. I mean, I think when they wanted wackiness, they wanted wackiness that has been sort of uh, purpose-built. Like... Zucker, Zucker, Abraham's films continued yes. for a good while, right? And their hits around this time, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, then, I think even Two and a Half, Naked Gun Two and a Half, might have been 91. Uh, like Repossessed, and I think that was 92 or something like this, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but then like Dracula, Dead and Loving It, Mafia, and but eventually they will just um, like trail off to like these spy hearts and scary movie three and like but I, f- I feel like this is something that maybe maybe you're right because i think for a film that's i mean it, it is primed to be a cult classic because it's insanely quotable you could imagine a, a midnight screening with people shouting lines like it was like hold on um it's veja do comrade <laughs> 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 something yeah. you wish had never happened you know like, or, because it's full of the like it has all the ingredients to be like a peewee's big adventure sort of movie right that has these mm-hmm. moments that are just insanely comedic that it's so easy to gloss over like you know i'll torture you so slowly you'll think it's a career <laughs> it's just, so it feels like it's again like a dante john dante movie so when someone says like he's like, oh, I remember it was kind of a funny movie. It's almost like it's an admission that it doesn't work because it's it, it's I don't. This movie cannot be an an okay experience. It's either like totally fucking hated, or this is absolutely one of one of the finest comedies of its time, right? <laughs> that no, that everyone slept on, right? Because if you like going like straddling the middle of the road and you're like middle of the road is the worst place to drive, you know, <clears throat> is is kind of like an admission that it actually does not have much of a legacy. Like it like it needs the fandom to crystallize around it, and, and the fact that it probably hasn't to the ex- extent of like Troll Two mm-hmm. is an admission that maybe it's I don't know not wacky enough, too wacky. I don't know. It's uh, maybe maybe the, i don't know i don't know what what its deal is but for me this works mm-hmm. on that level as in like it's it's just about wacky enough to, for me to have a lot of fun with um i like what you said about sort of some of the films and and maybe the what not to do's become a little bit of sort of the the film's legacy and lessons learned from hudson hawk maybe mm-hmm. because films that that attempt to be this silly in the future. You mentioned the, was it the repossessed and the spy hards and, you know, superhero movies and scary movies. And, you know, these, these types spy, of spy hard doesn't put Harrison Ford in the, in the lead role. Just put it that way. Uh, yeah, there you go. But also 
there it's very clear to the audience what's the target of the spoof and mm-hmm. what this parody is about and sort of that it's a very clear communication piece and just on the studio level they they sort of stick to that this is going to make fun of spy movies this is going to make fun of uh you know scary movies or whatever it just it's going to be targeted because wackiness i wonder between this and gremlins 2 and just wackiness on its own doesn't work maybe if you incorporate cartoon characters such Mm -hmm. as roger rabbit it can work or such as space jam it can work um not necessarily totally sold on space jam but you know it it's sold (laughs) um in in that way i i maybe i guess to to be this wacky you actually need to have the the cartoon characters no maybe for a mass audience maybe this is the again like ghostbusters and gremlins are to blame a little bit because they were successful in not re-communicating this very well and they worked and then mm-hmm. people's like, look, they did it. Maybe we can do it too. But maybe it, like people are kind of simpler than this. And they're just like, well, it's, it works easier if you actually just put it together and then just sell it as this is a parody of cat burglar films. Mm-hmm. And people kind of just will attune themselves to it, I hope. Right. Although for me, I, I'm always kind of taken by surprise by films like this. And it's just look, this is, you know, like you, you come in here. I'm not going to dismiss that. Look, this is kind of stupid. No, it's just, well, this isn't what I expected, but it's funny. Okay. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it has a sense of humor of some of something that's maybe, uh, like a lot of its jokes are not really out and out. Like, look, we're making fun here. Like this, they're, they're kind of stupid. They're kind of, almost surreal sometimes there's this girl with a teddy bear just smashing it against the railing and all of a sudden this teddy bear just flies in the air <laughs> just, and then this whole this whole building turns out it has like this you know it's like this Russian theater and they'll just put a poisonous gas in there but, but the capper <laughs> to that scene the capper to that scene is when the mom stops the daughter from from acting up um, you know <clears throat> Sally stop doing that you're embarrassing your country yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't like, it, it. Imagine like if if you com- concoct a sitcom that has these sort of lines, comedic lines that the actors don't really draw attention to themselves, but you turn mm-hmm. off the laughing track, and then you just, all of a sudden like there's still just joke them in it's sort of series of of one liners, but you can there's so much you can miss if you don't pay attention, especially if no one told you that you're going to sit through a sitcom without a laugh track. Mm-hmm. But I feel like what you're saying is just actually informing the audience of what's about to happen is probably beneficial. <laughs> <laughs> Um, one thing I wonder if it threw audiences off a little bit by it, in terms of expectations as well is you have this uh, this opening scene, this this prologue that actually takes place in Leonardo da Vinci's time where we follow him around his lab and just, you know, his his, <laughs> his workshop and his art studio and making this huge machine. Does this work? Because I would suggest maybe this this makes it an expectation of a production value, and this makes the expectation of like a period, uh, a period action film or, or something. Like I think it's setting up expectations that aren't strictly comic. So it's it's even getting what? the film off to the wrong. What? It sets up an expectation of a Robin Hood men in tights. 
How? Aside from the... Was just this explosion. It's like Leonardo, get back, or whatever. It's just and, and yeah. just like Leonardo's just painting this woman. Just can you smile for me? The, yes, goes, the, but that's the one main joke in there. Otherwise, it feels no, a little more. bit. There's more. There's um, one that doesn't work. It's gonna make an appearance, but you know, <laughs> the scene is just sort of flown through me, and I'm forgetting a lot of it. But to me, it's it feels like a little bit of an exposition setup that I'm gonna get from a film like The Phantom. Oh, and, uh, yeah, sure. But then like, there are these little moments in there that are kind of like, Leonardo just decided he really wanted to make this horse that was the biggest horse ever called the Sforza. And they realized they don't have enough bronze. So the house, the horse is like tiny <laughs> as well. Uh, it's, I don't know. There's slapstick in, 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 in there. Like the guy falls off a donkey. Like there's... Like it sets up the comedic expectations or expectations already, and I think the comedic expectations are kind of sort of vibing on, on the back of like the Princess Bride, something like that. Mm. I I suppose like like there's a clear production value in that opening, mm. which I think might might feel like it's setting, it's establishing something that you don't necessarily expect out of a comedy. Gore Verbinski would have, would have been all over that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> Of these sort of like spinning sort of things, this sort of I don't know this prism and the Da Vinci Code, putting this putting putting this sort of like the philosopher's stone in together and whatever. this is an eighties type of production design too, just like all these machinery and moving parts, and this is a bit of a production value flex, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they burnt like most of the budgets on this, right? They use it twice. <laughs> Yeah, true. Yeah, I'm running out of things. Unless there's anything else on your unless we can list list, list funny jokes, but you know, like for me, this this movie is essentially a laundry list of comedic situations where I think <clears throat> I mean, we did touch on quite quite a few of of what I think works. I think like the trio and uh, the intrigue is almost like a who cares, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, totally <laughs> for me this is not the crux of the film the crux is the is the fact that bruce willis is actually pulling his weight as a comedic performer uh and he effectively subverts this sort of the this sort of the action man that he kind of stepped in stepped into the shoes of so i think that that's kind of what i wanted so i think we've touched on everything at least i wanted to touch on do you think that this would um Again, I keep going back to, do you think this would land better? Do you think if this was a bit raunchier even, that it might have found an audience? But I guess then you still need it to be marketed as a comedy. And therein is sort of the problem with reception. It wasn't marketed as any type of comedy. I don't know. I have a feeling that this is... um... This is a victim of circumstance. I think that mm-hmm. this is one of those like let's like you know we're we're trying to put these action men in comedies. Let's put another. And I think you know look, look who's talking was quite a, quite successful. So like Bruce Willis still got it, even though it was just a voice. But you know, I don't know whether making it raunchier would have helped. Maybe toning down the action at the yeah no, but it it kind of feels. You know, I think it's just about right. It's just ahead of its time because it, it could, it could easily, you could easily this see this with 
instead of Andy McDowell, you have like Kristen Wiig and John Hamm. <laughs> like, and this is a Kevin, and 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 this is a Paul Feig, almost a Kevin Feige. Um, and this is a Paul Feig, and this is a Paul Feig comedy. Like you know, it has like the sort of. I mean, not you'd have to just put some more shit on a piece of humor just to make it work with the bridesmaids crowd. But you know, like this is kind of similar to post Joe Dapatow sort of. You know what? I think that's that's a good, that's a really good take right there. Because um, yeah, as I'm thinking, I think if this is raunchier, then it probably does turn into something maybe that we see. 10 or 15 years, like after the Farrelly brothers or, or something like that. If it, if it embraces, Mm -hmm. if it embraces, uh, you know, the, the, the potty mouth and sort of the raunchiness and the, the tongue flapping and all these, these (laughs) things that make an appearance here. Some of these scenes would have probably been improved in the post Farrelly world by some kind of bodily fluid somewhere. (laughs) Same. Same. Yeah. Let me cure you and let me kiss you. And it just, oh, because now, now I want to think. What are the biggest? Because what are the biggest comedies of the nineties? The Mask, Dumb and mm-hmm. Dumber. Yeah, so they're comedian driven. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think once Jim Carrey landed in the scene, it was kind of like a, we're 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 here we're set. This, we're, is we're, the, this is this is the thing to do. This this is the new thing we were looking for. When for, was. Five, six I don't, years. When was, um, I think Ferrelli's then had a good something about Mary that's them, right? Uh, which one? There's something about Mary. That's them and that's 98. Yeah, so again, I suppose you could argue that you know, Ben Stiller is kind of the comedian, but I don't think this movie is driven by Ben Stiller. It's driven by, you know, the, sort of the subversion of a rom-com, right? Yeah, and the, the Ferrelli's and the embrace of raunchiness and... Uh, ben Stiller, if anything, is is playing the straight guy in a way. Yeah. Um, but, but kind of what made time, it, yeah, the sort of the pushing the boundaries of you know, like the yeah, <laughs> common the hair or the sort of the the brutal sort of uh, flashing shot of someone's dick or balls stuck in a zipper or something like this. Like, oh, it's kind of like scary movie one and two kind of had this sort of yeah. Um, you know, there's pubes everywhere, and there's again body bodily fluids. This is what '90s were eventually all about. That's what it would turn to, and that probably is courtesy of Jim Carrey and the Fairleys. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm looking at other comedies of the '90s because I think comedy was sort of in need of something new. Because I'm seeing Wayne's World and Sister Act, and you know this this type of thing, like, but it's. Like Ace Ventura, Pet Detective was a bit of a different story, right? Yeah. Like it yep. was kind of more like, okay, it's still a little bit subtler and there's the the comedy in there is a little bit sort of hidden away and it's funny as hell. Ace yep. Ventura 2, on the other hand, over, like a few years later, all of a sudden like you have a guy kind of coming out of a rhino's ass. There's yep. <laughs> There are these, uh, you know, a little bit more sort of organic and, you know, bodily fluid. Like it's like the Cronenberg sort of kind of <laughs> oh, comedy. God. <laughs> the body comedy. <laughs> so I feel like maybe this is kind of how you fit in the late nineties. Just like add a few shit and piss scenes mm-hmm. in here, but then I, I just feel like this movie is kind of sort of like a little bit ahead of its time. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, and we didn't get it. And yeah, and I wonder if it did lean into 
sort of darker, grosser, a little bit more profane. I wonder if it might have it might have landed. Mm-hmm. Honestly. But I feel like maybe a, a good a good amount of uh, the movie as it is, maybe in the audiences in 1991 could have actually experienced it better if 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 they had been marketed at a bit more correctly. Yeah, that's kind of how I'm gonna leave it. Yeah, and on that, let's go into final thoughts. Unless there's anything else you want to get off your chest. This is a funny Looney Tunes cartoon enacted, reenacted by people, and I can watch it any day of the week. It's fun, fun, fun. You know what? No, I'm not gonna go four, four and a half out of five. That's what. Oh wow! Say. Wow! <laughs> wow! Okay. Um, fun times. Love it. <laughs> this this film totally doesn't always consistently land for me but i think that what's important is you do we've both said it you got to watch this the right way you can't be looking for a heist film and expecting sort of the action side of this to carry it through because it's tricky to follow it's uh, i don't want to say incoherent but you know close but if you're watching this as i think yeah could be you nailed it this is sort of looney tunes and roger rabbit type of thing without the cartoon characters this this is this is just sort of the the having fun type of thing i think you're looking at a totally different film and that there's there is a bunch of fun that can be had here um i think that if there were a character to ground it a little bit more that might be a help i think if it leaned into um it's profanity or vulgarity or poop humor and i'm usually not one to you know make a case for for the potty humor but i think if it leans into something like that i think it becomes uh you know very successful probably um but that's a few years off as it is yeah yeah as it is this is this is three stars this is this is totally worth checking out is it an uncut gem yes it's worth it's worth checking out it is an uncut gem, and also like it already in this in in the landscape of what it is and what's around it, I think it already commits. Like we talked about sneakers, this is something like this is like when we at least my my criticism was, oh you know, don't have too much fun on set, guys. You know, we don't want this to be too funny. We still have a story to say. We have we have a message to advance. Okay, we have to be no no. This is a we're having fun in here, guys, and fun was had. You know, and that's an interesting throwback to that other conversation in a way, because, you know, maybe that's part of the Michael Lehman thing here is that he's he's embracing the fun along the way. Because I do get that impression. I really liked um, Truth About Cats and Dogs. As I mentioned, Heathers is that, you know, it's it's sort of a fun film in its own dark way. And uh, maybe that's part of the, the piece that he brings here is this, you know, ability to say, yeah, OK, let's sort of lean into the the fun. All right tops i've mentioned quite a few already so i'll mention a few that i didn't and i want and one that i did because really it's really funny um so um, i guess we know who wears the penis in this family it's a good yeah. line uh <laughs> this is the line the pope takes this mail very seriously <laughs> um i also kind of like i think this is james coburn I always had a soft spot for Rome. I did my first bare-handed strangulation here. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Um, 
And the, uh, the the eternally funny moment is every time Andy McDowell speaks to a to a crucifix and the crucifix lights up as it talks back. It's great. And then the best line, and it's again, it's one of those be- blink and you miss it lines. It's just like, look, you teddy looking motherfucker. I want to be treated like an adult. That's fair. Now go to your room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave it there. Leave nice. it. All right. Um, a couple of mine, I've got, I've got quite a few. A couple of them have already been mentioned. Um, Richard E. Grant's entrance to the auction where he walks in, completely owns the place, sort of punches someone in the heads. A hundred million dollars or clams or whatever he says. Anyway, great entrance. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like the moment right before uh, Bruce Willis falls out of the ambulance on the gurney where one of the Mario brothers gets like 15 needles in the face. (laughs) That is uh, a wonderful, painful, awkward, cringe comedy. That's cringe comedy done well right there. Um, Read your book, Butterfinger. Okay. I will not eat them on a boat. I will not eat them with a goat. (laughs) It's great. The line before it is like, do you want me to rape him? Read your book. <laughs> yes. That oh, line Jesus. that line has a place on one of my lists. Um, the dart paralysis. We talked about that a little bit, but we mostly just sort of talked to uh, talked about uh, Andy McDowell and uh, the, the dolphin chanting. But the dart paralysis is actually pretty funny. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just... Just they're flopping around is 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 funny, but also at one point Butterfinger starts laughing at them flopping around, <laughs> and he's drinking something. You're making it come out my nose. It's just that's struck me as so so funny. Anyway, um, uh, but number one is singing during the heist. I think that is just uh, wonderful. It's 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 Fantastic. just a class moment in uh, a fun little fun little film and it's something that makes Hudson Hawk unique and I really like that okay move on to the bottoms okay what have you got small moments I mean you can kind of just okay if I wanted to be really pet peeve I would just say like what is Bruce Willis's obsession with cappuccino I'm just like can't you just not get a cappuccino somewhere like he has has to have the right kind of just go away um now I've got (laughs) three moments I have actually there's gonna be Four four moments I have. In the very beginning when Leonardo da Vinci turns lead into gold and everyone's speaking Italian, but for a second they go, gold, gold. (laughs) 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 It's just odd. Uh, Another one I have in the, I think it's in the bar. Bruce Willis has sweat stains in his his armpits. (laughs) Jesus. Um, didn't notice that I've got Minerva and Dalton's tongue action <laughs> and the worst moment is um, Bruce Willis's one liner at the end when he chops the guy's head off and he goes you won't be attending that hat convention in July <laughs> oh Jesus Uncle Bruce Bruce just calm down like you know <laughs> yeah. not every not everyone is a is a home runner Okay. <laughs> no. Uh all right, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. All right. So, for me there were a couple I, f- I found there were a couple weird cuts 
There's one where Hawk comes out of prison and he falls, but it's this weird cut to he's all of a sudden he's on the ground and I can't tell, does he trip? And then Ayala no. makes a joke that he's, you know, are you kissing the ground? I, I kissed the ground when I got my freedom. And I just don't really understand what's going on Cause with the, that. Because um, the car does, makes a noise. Because he has this sort of like, well, it's called like kickback. I don't know. It, oh, it's, did it startle him or something? Yeah, yeah. So he just drops to the ground because he thinks someone's shooting at him. Didn't catch that at all. Oh, but it's, it, I agree. This is awkwardly <laughs> edited. Yeah, it's sort of, and there's another weird cut too. After they jump off, this is after their first heist, and they jump off uh, a building, and and they smash through an awning, and then cut. Bruce Willis just sort of falls into a lazy boy chair. It's just sort of another weird cut. Then he's that's, being interrogated by the Mario. That's Brothers. a Looney Tunes moment. Come on. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's like in the Bruce Brothers though. when they, uh, I don't know, the car just flies into the air and lands in front of a building elsewhere. But this, this is just sort of a choppy, sloppy cut in my view. But anyway, um, also when Bruce Willis is on the gurney, a line that I don't think is funny whenever he's, you know, sliding along through through traffic. How am I driving? 1-800, I'm going to fucking die. <laughs> no? <laughs> no, doesn't doesn't land with me at all. Um, and then there's a couple of moments I think that Bruce Willis, he's shaking his head or something, and you get the, the Looney Tunes sound effect. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, no, that... And when he, when he gets hit yeah. by James Coburn, he goes like, wing, 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 wing. Oh, yeah, that's... Yeah, that is Joe Dante Looney Tunes. Totally, 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 totally. No, I, I, I do get that. I just that doesn't work for me. (laughs) Yes, and maybe the the two stars that are missing are sort of tied up in that possibly. Um, Butterfinger, do you want me to rape them? No, no. Because this is a setup. This is a call, and the response is, "Here's your book," and then he reads the book and. Yeah, it could have been any lead-in. Uh, anyway, that's just sort of an awkward line. But it's the nineties. Just wake up and see oh, yeah. the nineties. Yeah, true. Nineties are all over that. Nineties <laughs> and before. Um, but yes, the the low point. Although oddly, I was considering putting this on a top list. It just stands out. It's, but no, it's it's got to be on the bottom list. Um, Andy McDowell and her dolphin mating call. Whatever that. <laughs> Delicious. Yep. <laughs> She's really I, trying. Yeah, I think she needed to be the, the straight person, the grounded individual in this. And anyway, that's get it. real. Get real, folks, because that's it. Hudson Hawk is streaming not many places. It's streaming on Netflix in Canada, but I don't think it's streaming anywhere in the US. Don't think it's streaming anywhere in Italy or France or UK. So, but it's widely available to rent. It's widely available on Blu-ray and DVD. So, uh, everyone should give it a chance. It's a comedy. Look, look at it as a comedy and, uh, you know, and if it lands with you, you've got a great gift. And if not, it's still sort of a fun watch. Um, anyway, we are, as I mentioned at the beginning, we are planning possibly a bonus Hudson Hawk episode with a special guest. Please watch for that. Um, it will be available shortly in all likelihood. Mums, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. There's a few things that we that have to land, um, but 
wait for that. Um, and yeah, meanwhile, you can find us Uncut Gems on our social media and our website, www.uncutgemspodcast.com. Check it out. Um, you can browse all of our stuff there. And Jakob, where can our friends find you? Oh, they can find me at Talk About Film on Twitter, Jakob Flash on Letterboxd, uh, Flash on flashonfilm.com uh, and clapperlt.co.uk That's me. Cool. And you can find me, Jakob, on Twitter at Randy Burroughs, <laughs> letterboxd at Brad7. Uh, you, you can find me at clapperltd.co.uk um, And uh, yeah, join us back on the main show next week. So we'll be into a new month, which means first Friday of that month will be a new Soderbergh. We will be talking about our monthly Steven Soderbergh deep cut uh, and we'll be joined by our good buddy Ian Schultz from Psychotronic Cinema as we discuss The Clune, Toby Maguire and Kate Blanchett in The Good German so come on back for that experience and have a great week bye bye that's all folks mm-hmm.